We're continuing in our series through the book of Exodus. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 31. Our complementary passage is the book of Hebrews chapter 9 verses 11 through 14. So if you would place your bulletin or your bulletin insert as a bookmark in Exodus chapter 31, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. And in honor of God's word, please stand. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, hear God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 31 and continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for that is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. 
Father, as we have read, we come to the preaching and the conscionable hearing of your word. Lord, we do pray that it would prick our conscience. That it would show us our need for Christ. That it would show us our rest in Christ. And that it would nourish us to walk with Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So again, by way of setting, uh, the children of Israel camped here at the plains of Mount Sinai. They camped back in Exodus chapter 18, and they're going to stay camped through Numbers chapter 9. This is what I'm referring to as the Sinai Covenant. It's, a, it, the, it's an entire piece. Uh, it's divided into seven sections. If you were with us in Sunday school, this is, this is a, a, a thing that I'm kind of exploring, working on, seeing the pattern in Scripture and trying to put these things together. There's seven clear sections that are throughout uh, this, this Sinai covenant, each one interspersed with an, a progressive theophany, a progressive appearance of God. We start with thick darkness. We move to His feet. We, we move to His glory. We move to His back. As we, as we get a clearer picture of God throughout this entire seven sections of what is the Sinai Covenant. This morning we come to the end of this third section. This third section that began in chapter 25 and concludes in this chapter. And these are the laws regarding worship. So we've looked at the layout of the tabernacle. We've looked at the mercy seat. We've looked at all of these elements of of Israel's worship and what they point us to. And so this morning, as we, as we wrap up this section and prepare for the theophany uh, that is going to come uh, after, after this section where we will see the glory of God uh, displayed, uh, I'm sorry, the back of God in, in uh, chapter 33, we'll see God's back. And that's where Moses says, I want to see your face. And God says, nobody can. They can only, I'll show you my back. So this, this increasing progression of God, we close this section out with two key things. The first is this emphasis in the first 11 verses on the perfect copy that the entire tabernacle system is. Why do we need the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in order to have somebody make rings to carry furniture on. Why is this such a big deal? Why does God need to be not only so specific in his instructions, but also to literally fill men with the Spirit in order to accomplish these instructions? And the reason is because, as we pointed out, we're going to dig into a little bit more this morning, the tabernacle is a perfect copy. Secondly, the second thing we will look at is this closing of this worship series, and it it closes with God giving Moses the two tablets of stone written with his very finger, emphasizes this perfect rest. So the perfect copy and the perfect rest. Now, when I was a child, uh, I grew up in a Presbyterian home. My parents were very diligent about keeping the Sabbath. 
And in my young mind, I, I was a very hyperactive child. I was very active and, and whatnot. And, and the Sabbath was a burden. I really did not like the Sabbath. Because what the Sabbath was for me was a day in which I had to sit still all day long. I had to get up Sunday morning. Dad made waffles, which that was a good part. But from everything else, everything from there on out, it, the day was just, it was difficult. I didn't really enjoy it. It was a day of sitting in Sunday school. It was a day of sitting in worship. It was the afternoon when mom and dad took a nap, and I was so ramped up, I couldn't think of anything to do. But I knew there was one thing I was not allowed to do, and that was play. I couldn't go outside. I couldn't climb trees. I couldn't ride my bicycle. Uh, all the things that I would do to get energy out, Mom and Dad said, you're not supposed to do those things on the Lord's Day. And so I'd just kind of sit there. And then we'd go for evening worship, and then we'd come home. And frankly, in my little mind as a child, I breathed a sigh of relief when the Sabbath was done. It was a burden. I did not enjoy it. Because in my mind, it was a day of things I can't do. And I find that ironic because now as an adult... I serve on our Presbytery's Candidates and Credentials Committee. And so we examine men who are pursuing ministry. And it's interesting how the questions that I hear other men asking, these hopeful, reformed, Presbyterian, Orthodox Presbyterian ministers, sound an awful lot like the same metric as when I was a kid. <laughs> Have you ever heard those conversations about the Lord's Day? Have you ever heard those questions about the Sabbath? The questions always are along this line. Is recreation okay? Is it okay to go to an NFL football game? Is it okay to watch one on television? Is this breaking the Sabbath? And the questions are asked of the young man. And again, if you're familiar with the whole controversy of Sabbath keeping and whatnot, you know, some people will say, well, I take Calvin's continental position on the Sabbath. And others will say, I take the Scottish Presbyterian uh, position on the Sabbath. And all the, and it's almost like we've just taken my six-year-old simple brain and we've complicated it and we're at the same place. We're still there. What can I not do? What do I have to give up? What is it that I can't do on this day in order to be truly keeping the Sabbath? I think that both to the six-year-old and to the 56-7-ish-year-old, however old I am, <laughs> somewhere around in there, both are missing the point. We're missing the point. And so as we look at this second section a little bit, I want to open that up. But first, let's not rush past what clearly is on the mind and heart of God because he devotes 11 verses to why this has to be perfect. Now, it's interesting, as you note what God says about the craftsman. Bezalel uh, 
and Aholiab. What God says about the craftsmen, the standard that God gives to these craftsmen is the exact same standard that he gives to those who would write the scriptures. Do you see that? The same seriousness with which God takes his word being written is the same standard that he sets before the people in terms of this tabernacle. They have to be men that are inspired by the Holy Spirit and they have to do precisely what God has commanded. And in that, I think we begin to see a glimpse, again, of what the tabernacle is. The tabernacle is revealing to us the character of God. It's not just your average garden shed. It it isn't just a convenient place because, after all, the Ark of the Covenant can't sit baking in the hot desert sun all day long or the gold will melt off. there's There's a specific purpose for every single instrument. And you notice in our text, all the way down to the rings on the tapestries, there is a very specific point that God is making. There's a very specific thing that God is saying by this visual declaration of the tabernacle. All the way down to the loops that are on the corners of the tapestries. All the way down to that. It is got to be exact. Because it has to be a perfect copy. It's got to accurately reflect the original. So the question I think that you and I should ask is, okay, God is really concerned with this being a perfect copy. The question is, a perfect copy of what? What is it (laughs) that is being perfectly copied? That God wants to see this exact representation. Now, as we've been moving through this series on the the items of furnishing in the tabernacle, and and again, you you hear the reference, particularly in the Sabbath day, uh, in in you. God keeps keeps bringing these hints back in. The tabernacle itself is the Garden of Eden. That is what the tabernacle is. This place of perfect fellowship with God, communion, the table of showbread, all of these, the, the sinless place in which God is there and his people meet with him. The incense, the prayers of God's people rising above the throne. The difference between Eden and the tabernacle is at the gate of Eden, there is an angel with a flaming sword to bar the way, lest Adam and Eve enter back in. There is a flaming sword that says you cannot come back into Eden. In the tabernacle, there is a gate. And that gate says, come back into Eden. But the first thing you see as you're walking in that gate is that huge altar. All of that blood poured out all around, sprinkled on everything, sprinkled on people, sprinkled on furniture, furnitures, uh, furnishings, 
sprinkled on all of the elements of the tabernacle is the blood, is the blood, is the death, is the death. This statement that you can, I, I want you to come back to Eden. I want you to come back into fellowship with me. But there has to be blood. There has to be atonement. There has to be something that says, I deserve death. And because of death, because of this thing dying and not me, I can now be in perfect harmony and fellowship with God. So we, we've, we've seen the Eden aspect, but then I think we need to back up one step. What is Eden? Have you ever thought? Have you ever wondered that? What is Eden? Why did God create Eden? Why, why, does, why does the story of creation open with this garden? What is it about Eden that is, is just so central? And it runs throughout the entire Bible. You remember, at the end of Revelation, the picture of heaven brings Eden back in. There's the tree of life. Uh, there's the river that comes out of the throne. There's the tree of life. And, and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. What is it about Eden that is so important? And the thing is, the answer is, Eden is heaven projected into earth projected into creation. It is heaven, perfect fellowship with God, all things living in harmony, no sin, no defilement, creation operating as it should, projected into our creation. We lost that in sin. We lost that projection of heaven into creation in sin. And we regain it in the tabernacle, and obviously we regain it perfectly in Christ Jesus and his fulfillment of what the tabernacle is pointing to. The entire Bible addresses this question, how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back there? A friend of mine years and years ago said, you could, you could really summarize the whole Bible in two ways. Chapters 1 and 2 were created in perfect fellowship with God. Chapter 3, we lose it. And Genesis chapter 3 to Revelation chapter 21 is how do we get back? That, that's the story of the Bible. How do we get back? How do we come back to that personal, beautiful, and perfect relationship with God? That's the struggle and the message of the entire Bible. But here in the tabernacle, here in the tabernacle, the whole heaven intruding into creation takes on another context that I think is beautiful. Because the tabernacle is not built in a place of safety, is it? It's built in the wilderness. We've already dealt with one tribe that came after the children of Israel, and that's the episode where uh, Moses lifts his hands, and as long as his hands are raised, the Children of Israel prevail, and, and, and when he can't hold his hands up, and they sink down, and so his hands are held up for him. This is a dangerous spot. The wilderness is not a safe place. This isn't a march on the beach by any stretch. This is dangerous. It's threatening. We will see in the Exodus journey a lot more of the nations coming and threatening God's people. The wilderness is a place of danger. It's a place of thorns, of rocks, of hunger, of 
thirst of, of, of bad guys uh, that, are, that are wanting to come after you. It is a place of danger. And the tabernacle is heaven intruding into that chaos, into that danger. And you think of the gospel according to John, and chapter 1, and verses 14, or we'll just look at verse 14. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled, among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ himself tabernacles with us, dwells amongst us. And that's one of the other things that the tabernacle is showing. Because I haven't pointed this out as we've been looking at the tabernacle, I've been saving this for today. What is the tabernacle? It's a tent, right? (laughs) It's an elaborate tent, but that's what the tabernacle is. And just like every one of the other children of Israel, when it's time to move, God's tent is going to get broken down into its component parts. It's going to get transported to the next camping place. It's going to get set up, and then all the children of Israel are going to set up their tents in a, in a circle or orderly fashion around God's tent. It's a visual sign that God is there in the midst of them. Now, one of the beautiful things in the tabernacle, do you remember the lamp, the lampstand? And we're specifically told that Aaron and his sons are to keep that lamp going at all times. They are always to have that flame going. Why? What's the big deal? I mean, come on, God doesn't need it. If you're walking around the Israelite camp of an evening, and you see somebody who's got a lamp burning in their tent, what do you know about them? They're awake. They're at home. They're alert. When you go to sleep, you put the lamp out. The, the, the light burning in the tent is an indication that the occupant of the tent is awake, is active. The eternal flame of the lampstand is God saying to the people of Israel, I never slumber. I never sleep. Wake up with your fears at 3 a.m. Those 3 a.m. night terrors. You ever have those? I'm not talking about the children's night terrors. I'm talking about the real adult night terrors. The 3 a.m. thing where you wake up and just like, oh my goodness. What am I doing? How have I destroyed you know, my kids' lives? How have I destroyed? Just, just those things that keep me just at 3 a.m. I pop a, my eyes open and I'm going through. God's lamp is lit. God is there. And the He who keeps Israel never slumbers and never sleeps. And that's just the message, one of the messages that comes out of this identification of God with his people. In short, really, it is the Emmanuel principle. God with us. This Emmanuel principle 
that is here in the tabernacle. God is camping in the midst of his people. He's there in the midst of his people. Heaven has come in here. And there is the possibility of this communion and peace and fellowship with God. All of these things are why the tabernacle must be perfect in its copy. Because it's communicating the very heart of who God is and how you and I relate to him. But secondly, as we think about this Sabbath portion, in any agreement, in any agreement, there's things that are required of both parties, right? Think of the marriage vow. It's not just the husband that stands up there and says, till death do we part. The wife says, till death do we part as well. These are two individuals both taking vows and coming together to build a new home. There, there's, there, there's a, there, there's something that is required of both sides. And we've already seen that. We saw that in the last chapter with the, with the census or the muster of the people, uh, that was there in, in chapter 30, where God requires a half shekel from every male over the age of 20. If you're rich, you don't give more. If you're poor, you don't give less. Everybody's got to have buy-in. Everybody is responsible to buy in to this principle, (laughs) to this, I am committed to this tabernacle. I'm part of this. This is part of me. But then what do we do? What is it that we are called to do? In a marriage vow, I'm called to love my wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. I am called to love, cherish, till death do we part. All of the things that we say in the vows of marriage. There are things that I'm required to do. And so God closes this section with what you are required to do. With what the children of Israel are required to do entering into this covenant with him. And what is it? You're required to rest. (laughs) That's what God says. Rest. Not just once. I want you to rest. One day in every seven. And I'm connecting it back to the creation. You You heard that as we read the passage. For in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh he rested and was refreshed. Did you hear that? He rested and was refreshed, neither of which he needed. God did not get tired and he was not drained of all his energy. By day seven. He rested and was refreshed in order to give you and me the absolute perfect example of why you and I are called to rest and to be refreshed. Because, beloved, again, come back to the mercy seat. 
that very central thing in the tabernacle, that most precious of all the things in the tabernacle, that mercy seat covered in gold over the ark. The offense of the gospel, beloved, is not the mercy seat. Mercy is cool. I like mercy. I want to be merciful. I appreciate when people are merciful to me. Mercy is good. It doesn't offend me. What does offend me is the statement that I need mercy. That I can do nothing. I must have mercy. That is where I am at my most hopeless and simultaneously I am closest to God. When I am at my most hopeless in terms of what I can do to earn my way with God, when I am at the place where I can say truly, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's when I've begun to truly understand grace and mercy. And that's why the Sabbath. Because on this day that is set apart for worship, you and I are not going to worship God rightly by bringing rivers of oil, by bringing hundreds and thousands of bulls and goats, by bringing the fruit of the land. We're not going to worship God by adding my wisdom, my gifts, my talents. God is not impressed with me at all. When I'm close to Him, when I'm in communion with Him, when I'm having the fellowship meal with Him, when I say, I bring Nothing. All I can do is rest. God says, you're beginning to get it, boy. (laughs) You're beginning to understand it. You're right. That's all you can do. That's all I call you to do. That's why the Sabbath is such an important principle throughout the Scriptures. Throughout Israel's existence, the Sabbath is right there. At the heart, not only of what they're commanded to do, and you see it even here in this passage, above all, above all things, do this. Regularly proclaim, I bring nothing. I can only rest. But in that resting, I am reflecting God. I'm reflecting His work. All of your obedience, all of your love for God's law will grow out of rest. Will grow out of thankfulness. Psalm 119. Have you ever, have you ever, have you ever thought, you know, the way that Paul seems to talk about the law, Think of Galatians. The law is not of faith. 
How does that jive with Psalm 119? Where Psalm 119 is literally a love poem to the law. Every single verse in the 119th Psalm is, Oh, how I love thy law. The entire Psalm is a love poem to God's law. And then David, or Paul seems to be saying, Yeah, no, forget the law. That is bad stuff. I don't think that's what Paul is saying at all. I think what Paul is addressing is what the observance had become, which is we took this thing that was supposed to show that I bring nothing, and we turned it into something I bring. We took the very thing that was supposed to show I can do nothing, and we turned it into... You know what? I don't go out to restaurants on the Lord's Day. (laughs) I know you do, but for me, me and my house, we, we, we turn it into a performance. And frankly, we turn it into performance art. As we, as we come up with our lists, as we look at the, at the ways that other people don't live up to our standards, as, as we look at the thing, And I'm not saying the Sabbath is done away with at all. I'm not saying that at all. It is a day of rest. It's a day of rest and worship. And and just as an aside, practically, one of the things that I've always tried to encourage in my own household is not so much think of the things that you are not allowed to do, but rather think of the things which would make this day a special day. This day, a special day of rest. This day, a special day when we really can just rest. Rest from the constant working. Rest from the constant trying. Rest from the constant noise that is around us saying your identity is in how much you make. It's in how young you look. It's in how beautiful you are. It's in how popular you are. It's in how far you progressed in your career. It's in... All of these things that your identity is supposed to be wrapped up in. Just set it all aside. Just come here. Sit at your father's feet. Eat from his table. And rest. Rest. And I think if we are in that cycle, then we truly begin to understand what God wants that day to be for us. And what God wants that day to teach us. And that is that this is the foundation of your reality. You've done nothing. Not a thing. You are resting in Him. You are complete in Him. The Sabbath is, as with the, the half shekel, the Sabbath is you and me being very intentional, being very purposeful about resting and being refreshed. And I think that when you do that, when you, when you see the Sabbath through that lens, Let me read for you Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. 
If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day. Now, that's what I got as a kid. Bicycles and trees. Those are, those are right out. Because those are my pleasures. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord. And I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Beloved, that passage is not telling you to work harder at keeping the Sabbath. There's so many people who take that passage and say, see, you're not riding on the heavens. Work harder at the Sabbath keeping. That's not the point. <laughs> the point is delight in it. If you're delighted, you know, I, think, of, think of other days that are a delight. Let's say a birthday, all right? Special day, right? Your birthday or a child's birthday. Do you really have to say, okay, on the birthday, there's no eating of cookies, it's only cake. On the birthday, there's no pudding, it's only ice cream. It's cake and ice cream. I'm sorry, you can't have cookies and pudding, no cookies and pudding, cake and ice cream only. No, you don't have to do that. You don't have to say, no, 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 no. You delight in these things. You delight in these gifts. And beloved, if we view that Sabbath day, if we view that day of rest, if we view that day of worship, in the way that God intended it to be viewed, which is, this is our part in the grand story of redemption. Nothing. <laughs> Nada. Not a thing. Our part in salvation is to rest. Then, beloved, this day ought to be refreshing and joyful and a reminder of how much Christ has done. 